0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Missing Someone I Never Knew. start off this particular Inappropriate Conversation by reintroducing Walk the Earth. Lately, I've been putting out almost as many Walk the Earth episodes as Inappropriate Conversations, and that's really just a total of nine so far. But both shows can be found on the Inappropriate Conversations feed, and both of them feature on the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org. You also can hear both of these shows if you go to Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio has on-demand news, talk, and more from your mobile phone. The latest episode of both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth can be found there under Inappropriate Conversations. There's no syncing needed. You don't use any memory or waste any storage. It's available on iPhone, iPad, Android devices, and more. Downloading is easy. Just go to Stitcher.com or check out your app store. My Stitcher app has several categories. In fact, I listen to so many. I've got a whole section for music shows, for things on the Nerdist Network, things on the Pride 48 Network, a few in sports, and something I call public education. It has a variety of things, from poetry to literature to philosophy, there. But the station that I use is my shortcut. The programs that I listen to more often than anything else via Stitcher, Take Him With You, Greetings from Nowhere, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Secretly Timid, The JV Club with Janet Varney, Men in Blazers. And most recently, I've added Podcast of Interest, which I've listened to enough to feel like it's going to stay. It's a podcast about the TV show, Person of Interest. And Jonathan Nolan, the creator of that show, was once a different drummer, in large part because of that show. Those are the kinds of things that I've been listening to here lately on Stitcher. Inappropriate Conversations can also be found on Facebook, There's a page there, listed as a cause. Walk the Earth also has a page. To be honest with you, there's more people following Inappropriate Conversations than Walk the Earth, and that may not be surprising, based on the age of the two shows. The other thing about Walk the Earth is, it's a show that focuses almost exclusively on Protestant Christianity, and what I refer to as my church search. But Inappropriate Conversations has always had a bit of a broader perspective, looking at things like politics. Religion. Sometimes the combination, sometimes it looks at popular culture, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspects of the Inappropriate Conversations field, and there's no small dosage of nostalgia to be had as well. And that's really the thing that I kind of want to focus on today, because this was always intended to be a recording that was going to have a lot of nostalgia in it, and realizing that I was getting close to Valentine's Day, I'd actually thought, really wrestled with telling more of a nostalgic story about the most important relationship in my life and why not do that in a somewhat romantic way wrapped up around the concept of Valentine's Day. But there's a couple reasons not to do that. One is that I'm not the world's biggest fan of Valentine's Day. It's a bit of a cliche. In some ways, a couple years back, I almost made fun of it by getting together with a couple of friends, uh, virtually getting together, and recording the book Song of Solomon from the Old Testament. It's a way of somewhat... Thumbing a nose at the puritanical notions that many Christians have about what is and isn't in the Bible from a sex perspective, but also kind of thumbing my nose a little bit at Valentine's Day as an event. But the other reason that I didn't go there is that, frankly, I'm not sure how comfortable I am going into a lot of passionate detail about that singularly most important relationship in my life. And my wife has made it pretty clear that she's not all that comfortable with it either that in some ways there are things that I have not shared and will probably never share on inappropriate conversations. And when you look at some of the things that I have talked about, it's not like I've ignored the topic of sex. It's not like I've ignored past experiences dating. But there is clearly a fairly big area that I'm just not going to tap into, or I'm not going to tap into it very deeply. But nostalgia is an important part of inappropriate conversations. So how do I touch into the things in my past that have a real deep meaning for me in the aspect of religion in particular, but in some ways, popular culture. Think about it. A lot of times you've got a favorite song that you remember only because of who you were with and what you were doing when you heard it. Maybe not the first time you ever heard it, but that first time that you heard it and you knew you were listening to it, it kind of became the soundtrack of the experience. And a lot of times that happens with songs that are fairly lame. I've got things on my MP3 player that... I think some of my more music-oriented friends would be kind of shocked are there. But they're there not so much because I believe that there's some significant quality to that particular song by Air Supply. <clears throat> there's one song by Air Supply on my Zoom, But it's there because of the memories that it evokes about the experiences that, were, you know, that I was having at the time. It calls to mind a very specific relationship, and an important one at that. So it's a little bit hard even to talk about things like movies and music without, you know, dabbling, or at least being tempted to dabble, into that avenue of storytelling. So when I look back to the beginnings of Inappropriate Conversations, I mean, I covered some introductory material. The, the first episode ever really talked more about the uh, religion, sex, and politics. But the second episode dove headfirst into the concept of nostalgia, the character called the author, And I needed to do so so I could talk about Different Drummer and what Different Drummer meant as a concept. Different Drummer being the name of the last set of journal entries and writings that I delivered under the heading, under the pseudonym, The Author. So to talk about Different drummers from that point forward, I really needed to introduce that particular character from my past. But in some ways, I avoided nostalgia that wasn't deeply rooted either in my my original family, you know, my parents, talking about Mother's Day and Father's Day, really even talking in particular either about holidays in general, or using recollections of my childhood, recollections of family life, to specifically take a look at questions of interest. So I've shared things about my growing up years into the auspices of dealing with sex education. What's it like now? What was it like when I was a little kid? Talked a little bit about my relationship with my brother and how we um, engage in our love for football, and how inherently nostalgic that is. But really, I don't think I hit headfirst into a truly 100% nostalgia show until I talked about my sister, maybe Inappropriate Conversations number 41, and her passing. And it took me much, much longer to get really anywhere near dealing headfirst with the questions of high school. I've mentioned on more than one occasion, including a Inappropriate conversation show that dealt with it head on past tense, I think was part of the title of that one of not necessarily being a big fan of the high school reunion, not feeling that there were a lot of high school memories that I was all that eager to evoke and remember. I grew up in the seventies and early eighties from a junior high and high school perspective. And there are things about that particular time that are very, very different from what you might've experienced even 10 years earlier if you were in high school and college in the late 60s and early 70s, if you were part of the sexual revolution, whether you wanted to be or not, just by being the right age in the right place at the right time, your experience is going to be very different. I grew up right after that, meaning that I wasn't saddled with the baggage of all the nostalgia people have about the 1950s. We'll get to some of that a little bit when I talk about the different drummer. But I also wasn't living in what we might call interesting times. So in that post-sexual revolution era, post-drug culture era. Obviously, a lot of that was still going on, and there was a fair amount of sex, drugs, rock and roll, violence, um, unrest to a certain degree from time to time in my high school. But, yeah, I don't want to paint it as if it was too um, simplistic and Pollyanna, but I also don't want to paint it as if there was any hugely compelling story to tell there. I wasn't I wasn't going to school during the era of racial integration, for example. I was in a post-racial integration era, where a lot of bussing was going on and students from a very different part of town were being bussed into my high school. And the most amazing thing about it was that it wasn't really all that controversial. In fact, probably the only moment of racial intrigue or unrest that I can recall from high school, I did as a segment early on in the second year of this show, drumming up racial unrest. And obviously a story that I was right smack dab in the middle of. Otherwise, I wouldn't even have that story to tell. But really, beyond that, I don't have much to share in high school that I haven't already shared. Meaning it's reasonable to take a look at the nostalgia angle of an inappropriate conversation format and say, should I lean away from the personal storytelling? Because there are things that I know I could tell and that I could tell with a great deal of sincerity and passion that I don't necessarily want to tell. Because the last thing I want is trouble at home. Some stories are just meant to be Hours, which really derails the idea of covering any sort of Valentine's retrospective view of, of a lifetime commitment and what that means. And so while well, I was wrestling with how am I going to be in the right frame of mind, the right mood to talk about this, and what would I expect a listener to pull from it? See, you know, the thing is I've, I've shared about this in church before. I'm a person who essentially doesn't really have much of a witness I don't have the kind of witness that you'd have if you've made some big mistakes young in life, gone to juvenile detention, maybe spent some time in prison. I didn't make those mistakes. I mean, I did some things that were wrong, got away with it. So I don't have that same story to tell. I'm somebody who doesn't hesitate to drink alcohol, but I don't have any drug history to speak of. So when I stand up and point a finger back across 30 years of history and condemn Nancy Reagan and her Just Say No campaign... And the damage that it did to our society by taking our eyes off the ball and, and distractingly referring to simpler times that never really were that simple. I can do that because I've kept my nose clean, but I don't have a story to tell. And likewise, from a romance perspective, for me to talk about the number of years I've spent in a relationship with this particular woman, you know, what's somebody else going to take from it, short of the fact that, well, this guy's got an experience I don't have? Half the people I'm talking to are going to be divorced or have been divorced, and some of them have been divorced more than once. The last thing I want to do is put anything into anybody's face, or to preach to the choir. So I don't know if I'm ever going to get back to this love and happiness topic in the future, and if I do, how I'm going to do it. But I have decided that I am going to keep on telling stories. I'm going to keep on telling them, and I'm probably going to tell them in this sort of extemporaneous style, not really written out. Or making a reference to something that calls me to do a little bit of reading, often reading of something I've written years and years ago, but then snapping back into just telling it like it is. How would Greg sound if Greg was in your living room, or you were at a restaurant together, and you couldn't get the guy to shut up? Well, that's what I'm shooting for. And I think I have spoken to some friends who, you know, in some cases, friends who've only known me recently, who would probably back me up and say, yeah, not that different in person than what he sounds like on an inappropriate conversation show. And I've made a great deal of effort over the years to try to meet those people. So when I talk about having met people online and engaged in conversation and learned from them and and picking up things from different experiences and trying to round out my perspective... Not limited to just the things that I've seen and experienced myself, but also, in a lot of cases, trying to find the right way to share the unique things that I've seen and experienced myself. You know, this, is, this is the style that I use. But I want to talk about a slightly different type of storytelling. And I want to do so because something happened to me within the last week that really hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm recording this on a Thursday in the month of February 2014, and a week ago... A classmate, I guess is the right word. Somebody that I went to high school with. Somebody that I probably attended school with for five consecutive years. At least three consecutive years. And I'm using the vague term classmate. And being really honest about how little I remember about how many years I would have known this person. I have no recollection of our first meeting. This is not somebody with whom I have connected in the way that I've described in some of the other sacred history type shows. But nevertheless, a classmate died a week ago. And you know you look at it and you say, "Hey, I've always been afraid. It's something that I've expressed in past inappropriate conversations, in fact, that fear that how will I handle the news, that somebody that I feel a very deep and spiritual connection with, that I've known 30, 40 years ago but have not spoken with in 25 or more. How will I deal with that news? when I hear of the passing, because it dawns on me, not that I didn't know it, but it dawns on me that it is now just a matter of time. Because this isn't the first time that I've gotten word that a high school classmate has died. This is not the first person in my graduating class to die. But it's the first time that I've actually had to look it squarely in the eye. And that's interesting to me, because I would not describe this individual as a friend. And I'm quite sure that that would be reciprocal i couldn't even describe her as an acquaintance and i can't even recall any one chance meeting any fleeting moment in a class or in a hallway or at a ball game where i could say that there's any reason why this person would have recognized me even by name that's the thing i spent a good piece of my high school years looking around and saying that i was pretty comfortable being invisible that if that was a superpower I had, it was a superpower I was willing to exploit. So I'm not saying that I would feel any insult if somebody who was still actively participating in reunion-type activities had a hard time recognizing me or recalling face to name. Wouldn't surprise me a bit, wouldn't bother me a bit. It would in some ways be a validation that I was actually successful in moving through groups in a way that was relatively... Non-confrontational. Now, I was a fairly public person, wrote for the high school newspaper, uh, played uh, drums for the marching band. So it wasn't that I wasn't in front of my classmates from time to time, but not necessarily in a way that drew a lot of attention to myself. And that's exactly how I would describe Hillary. So if I have no connection, if I have no reason to have an emotional reaction, then why am I having one? Well, there's two factors that are kind of important to note. One is that the last time a friend from high school passed on, an acquaintance, I didn't really have much of an active presence on Twitter. I might not have even been on Facebook, or at least I hadn't been on for long. And there was one actual classmate, I think in a grade older than me, where when I got online, she had already passed away. And the thing that struck me about that was that she still had a page and her page was still getting friend requests. I was trying to get my head around that whole idea of saying, wow, you know, when, if you were to suddenly disappear, if you were to die unexpectedly, who would take the time? How would the process of, of making yourself deceased online even play itself out? Who's going to even take the time to figure out my passwords on something like Twitter and send out a tweet saying, hey, Greg's gone? And that roped me right back into that idea of saying, hey, you know, if I've got really powerful feelings about a particular individual or two, how am I going to react when that person is gone forever? And I'm confronted with it because I I hear about it on Facebook or Twitter. I don't even get an email from a friend of the family. I find out in the most objective news source, third-hand, oh, by the way, sort of, it's just the wrong way to find out, especially if if you know you're going to have regrets about things that didn't get said well. Now, I don't have a lot of friends that I look back over the decades to and say, well, the biggest problem is that that ended badly and I feel horrible about what I said or did. I don't have any of that at all. But in some cases, I feel badly about things that I didn't say or didn't do. Because I'm a big chunk of the reason why all those years have disappeared. So there are two or three things that happen, maybe more. The second you get this news that somebody that you used to know is dead, especially if that person that you used to know is your age, it eliminates the question of how old was she or how old was he. Because George Carlin actually has a comedy routine where he basically says, Yeah, it's the, the first thing you do is you say, Well, okay, how old am I? How old was the other person? If, if that's some sort of a standard, how much longer do I have? In this case, it's not good. It's somebody who's obviously died young because I don't perceive myself as necessarily being that old. So I don't need to worry about the age. But then the next question is, well, what What was the cause? What was the reason? Is there an explanation? And if the explanation is something like, you know, a horrible disease like cancer, then I can sort of, I can deal with that. And that makes me feel a little bit less mortal, a little bit less in peril than something random, like, you know, getting run over in the street or a horrific car accident I feel like you, you feel like you might have a little bit of warning if there's going to be an illness that catches up with you. But that really wasn't my first thought in this case. When I heard the, the news, my first thought was, was she in my graduating class or was she in the graduating class a year older? And that's strange. I think it speaks something to her maturity level. Something to perhaps the fact that on some subconscious way I might have looked up to her a little bit, even though we probably never had a conversation, at least not one that I can recall. But it was because there was such an outpouring of immediate sympathy for people in both graduating classes, not just mine, but the one above me, that it arose a real question in my mind. And the answer was, I didn't know her well enough to even know for sure that we wore a cap and gown on the same night and walked across the stage while part of the band played Elgar. And... That's really kind of a starting point, because the real question in my mind was, not just how did she die, but what was the rest of her story? It was alarming to me that somebody who was that popular, that well-known, by name, and certainly by picture, I would have known, yes, I went to high school with her, that I could know so little about the story. And then the strangest thing happened, and it's what's got me talking about this topic on this day. It's what's disturbed me, I suppose is the word for it. And I don't want that word to carry too much weight. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, seeking professional counseling help. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, crying myself to sleep or living in some sort of fear. It's, it's more subtle than that. It's just a little bit under the skin, a little bit haunting. Again, a loaded word. One of my friends in the class, that graduated a year ahead of me, posted something online. A video. A video from a storytelling art performance I'm still struggling to come up with a way of describing this, but Hillary lived in Dallas and was part of something a couple of years ago called oral fixation. Now oral fixation is essentially a storytelling event where a few times a year people will get together who've carefully written and carefully crafted stories and read them or even semi perform them on stage. It's a tribute to the art of storytelling And usually there's a theme wrapped around it. My understanding is that Hillary's story was not just part of a theme on the night that she performed. It was the centerpiece of it. It was the inspiration for it. It was called One Night Stand. I'll get back to that in a minute. But if you wanted to see what I've actually seen, if you wanted to get a look at what I'm talking about, the website is at oralfixationshow.com. You might imagine that just oralfixation.com would take you in a very dark direction, or at least a very titillating direction. No, this is legitimate art stage performance stuff. And again, I didn't know Hillary well enough to know whether or not this was right up her wheelhouse, or whether she was way far out of her comfort zone to have done so. And she had to have been out of her comfort zone a little bit. Because this video shot two years before her death, which I saw two days after her death, told the rest of the story. I was literally subconsciously asking myself, one, who was she that I somehow didn't know her? And two, what might explain her journey that could give me some understanding of such an early and untimely death? And she was speaking the words that answered those questions in a nine minute, carefully written, well written presentation a couple of years ago. It's a story that talks about getting cancer as a teenager, losing a leg getting cancer a couple of times more, dealing with an unsettled sense in your 20s, being uh, struggling with dependency, being a victim of sexual assault, and all wrapped around a piece of furniture that was handed down to her from her father's side of the family. She was the inheritor of a nightstand. Not a pair, just one. And the one nightstand that she got from her, you know, again, her father's side of the family was a piece of the storytelling all the way through, and, you know, again, masterfully written. Worth the time to look at the uh, One Night Stand series, which some of the videos from that, including Hillary's, are available on this website. It's worth the time. But for me, it it was more than that. It was staggering in that if I'm talking to myself, I'm saying, hey, you went to school with this person for at least three years, perhaps five years, and you didn't know that at some point during that experience she lost a leg at no point was I aware that she had a prosthesis I, I didn't know or if I knew it was not something that stuck in my file system that I could recall later and saying, yeah I was aware of that the more I think about it the more I think yeah she, she did have a limp but then going from somebody who has a limp to somebody who has had cancer and lost a bone cancer and lost a leg that's a huge leap now this would be put me well out of my comfort zone again when it comes to personal storytelling. Because now I'm not just telling my own personal story, I'm telling someone else's personal story, or at least hinting at parts of it. And parts of it are the kind of thing that, if it were in my background, if it were in my wife's background, I'm quite sure my wife wouldn't want it to be told. And Hillary wasn't delivering it in the context of a religious witness. She wasn't telling the story from the perspective of of leading up to an altar call and and talking about her you know, moment of saving grace, and therefore everyone else can have that too. It wasn't the kind of thing that I'm used to when it comes to somebody standing up and telling you something dark and difficult about their past. You know, that sometimes can lead to a church-type scenario, but this was not a, an amazing grace-type situation. It was truly art for the sake of art. But for me, it was a real wake-up to say, "Hey." You've got stories that you're unwilling to tell, but look at Hillary. She's got stories you'd be unwilling to tell if you were her, and she's not just telling them. She's telling them well. And if she hadn't taken the time to do it, then her name would be in fine print. She'd be in the agate page, like the sports scores, rather than the front page of the sporting page with the sports stories. The fine print, as opposed to being somebody who perhaps, based on what I know now, deserve to have a little bit more detail, known and understood, even by people like me who didn't really know her. So I'm wrestling with what it means if one of these pieces and parts of your life was taken out, was removed, because one of my fears is losing memory, losing memory of some of the people that I did care deeply about and felt a real connection with in high school. And I think I've got a sense of What it means to not know something you ought to know. Because within the last seven days, I've been confronted with it in a very jarring way. Now, some of this is to offer some sort of rest in peace to Hillary. To say, well done. You know, because her storytelling has been timely and meaningful for people who weren't there in the audience. The video is of that night. There's video of people in the audience reacting to what it was that she had to say. But it's carried on and had a life of its own. And I think in some ways maybe she had a sense of her mortality. It's that sense that I want to come back to after the different drummer segment and speak a little bit to the circle of friends that I'm surrounded by and how it differs from circles of friends that I've been surrounded by in the past. And what, if anything, would my family or my friends do, if Hillary actually had been one of those people with whom my connection had been much closer than it was. Because I think a lot of people that I'm close to, who care about me deeply, sort of smile and nod that there are two or three or four people in my past with whom I've got such a connection that I often meet people and say, oh, well, that's another so-and-so. Because those so-and-sos, whether their names be Janet or Mercy or Sean or whatever, are important enough that I'm often struck by how often I meet people who are like them in some ways, or like them to me in some ways. But I can honestly say, I don't think there's anybody that I've ever met, and certainly not anybody from those high school days, that is like Hillary. And that means that in some level, I'm struggling with the fact that she's somebody that I perhaps should have known but didn't. And I'm not saying that it would have been a great friendship, it might have only just been somebody I spoke to one time in the cafeteria or something, but I'm stuck missing somebody that I know I never really knew. Maybe the best example I can think of, of the notion of what it means to have a piece of your life missing or to be confronted with what would it be like if there was somebody that you, that you didn't know, or if you weren't there and you, you could have been there, is It's a Wonderful Life. And our different drummer for this particular topic is Frank Capra. It's a Wonderful Life is known now as a Christmas movie, and that's ironic because Capra himself is on record saying he didn't feel that it was. And it was released on January 7th, 1947, not exactly the time you'd release a film that you intended to be a Christmas movie. In this day and age, most of those Christmas movies come out before Thanksgiving and are intended to reach a wide audience in the weeks building up. Almost advent movies rather than Christmas movies, in the sense of taking advantage of at least four Sundays of holiday themed movie ticket sales. Based on the relative lack of success at the original box office for It's a Wonderful Life, it is something of a miraculous accident that most of us know about the film at all today. I suspect I might either way, because when I was in college, one of the areas of emphasis for me was film, and in the process of getting an English minor, at least nine of the hours toward that minor were film. I probably spent as much time taking courses about screenwriting, screenplays, film, film itself, than I did about true literature. You eliminate some of the composition courses and the grammar courses, and if you focus on film, you've pretty well occupied your journey toward an English minor. If you're a journalism major, it's going to play out pretty easily that way. And I think as somebody who's a big fan of film... I would have stumbled across Frank Capra, maybe for It Happened One Night, or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and somewhere along the way that journey would have taken me to It's a Wonderful Life. But I encountered It's a Wonderful Life like most people of my generation, when cable TV first came to the neighborhood. We had one of those cable boxes that was not anything like a remote control. In fact, when you hear the expression cable box today, I wonder if a younger generation who's lived an essentially wireless existence would even know what you're talking about but bigger than a book this box had something like 20 buttons across the top with a toggle switch of three levels to where you could basically get to 45 50 60 channels that way and it was all very push and click in terms of finding your way to those buttons and back then this is before espn a sports channel wouldn't have had any highlights of games or any news-type approach with a couple of people giving you the events of the day. It would have just been scrolling copy against a blue or a red background showing you what the scores were in games of local and national interest. That was the sports channel. And the channel American Movie Classics, which has persisted to this day, back then, in my early experience of cable television, was a much different animal. It didn't have commercials. It didn't feature anything that was released in the last 20 years, or at least mostly didn't have things released that recently. And the shows always started on the hour. So if you were tuning in to American movie classics back in the day, again, nostalgia show, let's go there. The shows would start at 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 8, and so forth and so on. And if a movie was less than two hours long, you would just have plain blue screen until the top of the hour. You might have had plain blue screen... With some sort of scrolling on it telling you what was coming up next. But you didn't have, you know, like the Turner Classic Movies approach with you know, Robert Osborne introducing the show and giving you some of the history and background. No, that wasn't happening. It was simply a matter of the show starting at the top of the even numbered hours. And because of a, you know, just sort of a quirk of, of timing or lack of focus, the movie It's a Wonderful Life fell out of copyright production and into public domain, meaning that while there might have been a fee to pay for American Movie Classics to show things like Operation Petticoat or you know, the 1940s version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, basically with a public domain copy of It's a Wonderful Life, you could show the film as often as you wanted to, not have to deal with the big expense of, of covering royalties. And American Movie Classics was probably the reason that most of us, my age anyway, saw It's a Wonderful Life. It wasn't just on every Christmas time. It was on a lot. I'm going to say all the time. But if two or three months went by, and at some point the AMC channel wasn't showing It's a Wonderful Life, it would have been a big shock. And talk about a big shock. I think the first time most of us have seen the movie, we've had a reaction to it. I know some people who really dislike the film It's a Wonderful Life, and would probably resent the fact that I'm talking about Frank Capra, putting so much of my attention there i'll get to more about the director in just a moment but for now i was struck by one of my english professors who referred to it as a totalitarian film was her opinion about it that it was basically telling people how they were supposed to feel and it was a movie made with the the entire purpose of bringing people in line do as you're told ignore your dreams don't travel like george bailey wanted to Stay at home, take care of the business, your reward is towing the line and doing the right thing. A very workers unite um, sense of the nose to the grindstone version of the American dream that you can understand putting off a lot of people on either edge, not just at the ends of the political spectrum, but even either edge of the middle parts of the political spectrum, because it seems to be against the individual and in favor of what I might describe as the collective good. That's going to bother some folks because it reeks of socialism. It's going to bother other folks because it's somewhat of a puritanical notion of, of being under the thumb of a controlling morality. And when you look at it from that perspective, if you take that sociological film critic view, well, you can certainly see it. That George Bailey is a man with a lot of character, ability, and dreams, and he ignores all those dreams because he does what he has to do every time he has to do it. His brother goes off to travel, not him his friend becomes a millionaire in the manufacturing business, not him, and so forth and so on. Now, it's not that George Bailey doesn't have a few successes along the way, but those successes are all turned by the beginning of the third act of the film into a real downer. It's converted into all of the things that are holding him back, and when he imagines what his life would be like without those things, in the minds of a lot of people, it just turns him into an anchor. I've heard people describe Bailey as being not a good person at all. That if it weren't for the sheer charm of Jimmy Stewart as an actor, Jimmy Stewart, a former different drummer, that we wouldn't like him one bit. That he loses his temper. He lashes out. There's moments when he's fairly selfish. He's certainly very manipulative. But I don't buy the theory that Bailey's a bad person. What I buy is the theory that Bailey's an everyman. And even if some of the people around him are a bit cliched, Uncle Billy, Mr. Potter being a couple of good examples. At least I think there was an effort to make him a real person and to establish through more than an hour and a half enough expositional points of plot history that the last 30-45 minutes, turning into something of a ghost story, are both very impactful, but also are in a lot of ways just a cash-in of what you've sort of seen happen before. Now, it delivers a happy ending, It's a happy ending that rarely fails to generate an emotional response in me, despite the fact that I've seen it so many times. But to me, the thing that makes It's a Wonderful Life interesting and impactful for this storytelling concept is not just what a comprehensive life story the storytelling is. More length, more directorial control than Frank Capra had, and he spent a lot of his career with a good deal of directorial control. But more to the point, it rings true for me in the notion of what would it be like if you weren't there? There are very few people, I think, who haven't at least once in their life wondered, hey, at my funeral, what are people going to say about me? But in this case, Bailey gets one of those rare true-life looks into, yeah, what would it be like if, if I was never here? Capper only gets away with making a film like that by establishing a career that truly paved the way for it. He's a director of Americana, and regarded highly, I think, although perhaps not highly enough, for his contribution to film. In an era when the movie business was making a transition from silent into sound, you really needed at least a few directors there who weren't just visionary artists, but had the technical ability to overcome the hurdle of making movies in a completely different way. And Capra, being an engineer by training, and coming into the movie business almost by happenstance, was uniquely equipped to deal with some of the challenges of trying to marry sound to film. I've read reviews where Capra is credited as being one of the first, maybe not the first, but certainly one of the first, to put overlapping dialogue into film. Now, when we think of the concept of overlapping dialogue, it really kicks in more in the late 60s and early 70s than now. So perhaps this was an innovation in American filmmaking, That took place in stages. But truthfully, if you look at what was happening before, say, It Happened One Night, middle of the 1930s, and what Capra would do from that point forward, you get a lot of characters who are talking over and through and genuinely with each other. And that would have been very strange, because from the late 20s talkies on, what you tended to have was the the miracle of sound being leveraged to such a degree that I think that many of the performances in some of those pre-production code movies were more than just stagey, not unusual in a staged drama, a play for two characters to be speaking at the same time and being chagrined with each other over it. The one thing that's true of a play is that there's going to be a projection in the use of voice such that an entire house can hear what's being said. But in the movies, uh, and I'm thinking specifically things like Casablanca, what you'd end up with was an effort for one character to say their piece and the other character to wait and then say their piece. And the dialogue was almost, you get yours, I'll get mine, you get yours, I'll get mine. There was no marriage of character interaction on film. And this was something that Frank Capra relatively willfully put into place. Most of it was an effort on his part to leverage film editing and put pace into movies. He had a sense that movies on the big screen seemed to move more slowly, seemed to feel more stodgy, and he wanted to make things snappier. And in the course of doing so, he had a tremendous influence over the rest of Hollywood history. The main thing we think of when we think of Capra, though, are slices of Americana. It's as if Frank Capra is almost the Norman Rockwell of filmmaking, except that he made most of his films in black and white. But when you think about if they were to be full color, and if you were to turn them into stills, and then ask a sentimental painter to paint them as brightly as possible. I'm quite sure that Capra provided a good deal of inspiration, not just for the Norman Rockwells of the world, but also for the Leave it to Beavers of the world, too. He was nominated for his first Best Director Oscar in the 1932-33 year for Lady for a Day, and then he went on a bit of a winning streak in 1934, winning for It Happened One Night. In 36 for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and in 38, for You Can't Take It With You. He was later nominated again for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939 and for It's a Wonderful Life. The interesting thing about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is it might be one of my favorite movies from 1939. Its problem is that it came out in the same year that both The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind hit theaters. Kind of hard to win a lot of honors in a year that's crowded out in that particular manner if i jump over to imdb and share just a quick quote from john c hopwood the biography it's called an imdb mini biography but it's actually one of the longest biographies i've ever read on imdb for capra hopwood says this capra was a populist and the simplicity of his narrative structures in which the great social problems facing America were boiled down to scenarios in which metaphorical Boy Scouts took on corrupt political bosses and evil-minded industrialists created mythical America of simple archetypes that, with its humor, created powerful films that appealed to the elemental emotions of the audience. The Immigrant, Capra, who had struggled and had been humiliated, but persevered due to his inner resolution harnessed by the mythopoetic power of the movie to create proletarian passion plays that appealed to the psyche of the New Deal moviegoer. It is important to note that these sentimental films were released at one of the darkest times in American history, right in the middle of the Great Depression, and not far from being on the verge of World War II. Capra then after the relative lack of success of It's a Wonderful Life, went on to make films of a more ephemeral quality. Now, he was no stranger to targeted documentaries. I'm very careful not to refer to them as propaganda films, but when he won an Academy Award for the Prelude to War documentary and followed that up with several other World War II-era documentaries about World War II under the heading of Why We Fight... For many, I imagine for most Germans and Japanese, these would have been viewed as propaganda films. Although, from Capra's perspective, if you line up the films he made during this period with Triumph of the Will by Leni Reifenstahl, one of them is clearly a frightening piece of propaganda, and the rest is, you know, perhaps less so. But then again, German filmmaking of the time would have been far more dictatorial than the American filmmaking of the time. So no stranger to documentary is craft. Capra would go on in those late years to return to his love for science and make a series of movies, producing at the very least, of you know, what I would call well, the kind of films you'd see in science class when you were in high school. Wikipedia describes them as 4 science-related television specials in color for the Bell Laboratory Science Series. Now, these were released in the 1950s. But it's quite possible that I was in elementary school or junior high school. I might have seen Our Mr. Sun, Hemo the Magnificent, The Strange Case of the Cosmic Rays, or Meteora, the Unchained Goddess. These were films which married his love of science with his love of film. And I've heard them referred to as ephemeral films before. Again, the kind of films that you would show in this case to a science classroom... Others that have been examples have been, you know, things you might see in a home ec classroom. Although his films, my guess is, are going to age just a little bit better than the duck and cover movies that the Atomic Cafe is a documentary makes so much fun of. Movies that might have been filmed for the same reason and during the same period of time. The very first time I mentioned a different drummer who was engaged in the art of filmmaking, it was an an editor. Dee, Dee Allen had recently died, and she was my favorite all-time film editor, still is my favorite all-time film editor. And I'm always going to have a soft spot for directors who understand the craft of film editing. And I think, really, the, edit- the, the directors who understand editing the best are going to be memorable, because editing is truly the, the science behind filmmaking. It's the thing that makes putting a movie together different from photography and different from the screenplay written on the page. It is truly the heartbeat and the pace setter of film. And there's a couple of innovations that Capra brought that I want to close this different drummer segment with just by highlighting and calling them out. First, with actors, he was one of the early directors to tell crews that here we are on a set, I've got a group of technical people and I've got a group of performers. And it's important that their roles are clearly understood. Early on, there would have been a sense that the performers were doing things on behalf of the technical people. But Capra flipped that on its head and wanted to make sure that his crew understood that they were there to serve the needs of the actors, not the other way around. That the stars of the show, in other words, were the people who were doing the performing. We take this for granted today, and we probably would have taken it for granted during the heyday of the silent era at least in the work of people like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, that the actor is the star of the show. But really, when you're looking at that period when the studio system was fully entrenched and well in place, it just wasn't the case. The actors were traded like pawns in a game of chess, and the real stars of the show were those who were actually the technical people putting things together. The other thing I think that was very interesting is that Cabra began his career spending a lot of time working in rehearsal. He was committed to the idea of rehearsal, and perhaps it was because he was less comfortable with the acting side of the craft than he was with some of the more technical pieces of the puzzle of making movies. But he he learned an important lesson with some of the stage actors that he was dealing with and described it as himself as being somebody who'd come to believe that a lot of these actors never get any better than their very first take. So... He then began to rely very heavily on improvisation. That's a huge shift to go from somebody who was rehearsing every scene carefully and completely to doing more of an improvisational style. And what he would do is, especially if he had an actor that he really felt was was totally going to give him the best take first almost every time, he might work with some of the supporting actors. He was certainly very, very carefully with the staging and with the cinematography to make sure that that first take was as good as it could possibly be, because from the acting perspective, he might never get a better clip to cut with. I decline to be one of those people who's going to use the political views and the moral and scientific understanding of the world of the older generation as a reason to never cite them as different drummers. I suspect that if Capra were alive today and was capable of speaking, you know, young enough, I suppose, that he could still carry on a conversation, he would have very different outlook to me, that we wouldn't be on the same page from an inappropriate conversations perspective. I've read quotes from both him and perhaps Jimmy Stewart that would raise questions about whether either man would think that naming a show "Inappropriate conversations makes any sense whatsoever. And heaven forbid if you make good on the title, well, then you're just a terrible human being. I'm not going to hold that aspect of the older generation against that generation to such an extent that I refuse to allow myself to appreciate what Capra put on film and what it meant to the time and place in which he did that work. Likewise, though, I'm also not going to hold bohemian excess or hedonistic mistakes against people who are my age or younger, people who faced a different set of challenges Growing up in the 1970s, than Capra could ever understand, any more than somebody my age could truly understand what it might mean to have been out of college in the 20s and 30s and trying to find your way in the world in the midst of the Great Depression. Capra left us things of tremendous value, whether I share many of his other values or not. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com bit of a strange way to end a different drummer segment, not just speaking about the moral and political views of somebody who died years ago, but comparing it and contrasting it in some ways to the moral and political views of somebody who died just recently. But I feel like I need to raise it, because I've mentioned online, I think particularly on the Walk the Earth page on Facebook, that in some ways being between churches has given me a tremendous blessing, and that rather than having simply one pastor that I engage with, on a regular basis and can deal with the things that i'm struggling with things that hit me like a ton of bricks for example i got a lot of pastors that i interact with (laughs) all over this country part of that is the beauty of the internet and the nature of things like facebook and twitter but part of it is that i've intentionally gone on a bit of a spiritual journey trying to seek a new church and that is naturally if you visit more than a dozen churches in a year you're going to meet more than a dozen pastors in a year and you might just make a connection with enough of them that you could share a little bit of what's going on in your life with more than one of them. And that's where things get really interesting. Because in her storytelling video that Hillary shared under the heading of One Night Stand, she includes relating the story of a one night stand. She actually describes her use of of drugs and alcohol in such a way that part of me believes that there has to be a little bit of poetic license there or she should have been dead a long time before. So here I've got somebody not following the American dream, not going out there and getting a job, not looking for Mr. Right, sometimes looking for just Mr. Right now instead. Somebody who's gone from being well-respected and part of the kind of the social elite of my high school to being somebody who would hit rock bottom. And maybe hit rock bottom on more than one occasion. I've got friends. Some of them in the ministry. Some of them just sort of in your sort of family type circles. Who would have a lot of judgment, criticism, maybe even scorn to offer someone like Hillary. The way she lived her life. The story she's told about it. The fact that she's telling that story at all. People who would probably tell me that, hey, you know what? I don't understand what you're doing this podcast thing for. You shouldn't be telling those stories. But I want to reject that judgment. Just like, like I would reject anyone who judged Frank Capra, who walking the earth today, I'm sure, would have a lot of very negative things to say about people who are foreign and people who are different and people who have a different sexual orientation. I don't I don't know where he would stand on those things because he came and went in a different era. But in the era that I grew up in, I can understand why somebody would struggle with dependency. And I can actually understand why somebody who'd been the victim of violent sexual assault would choose to tell that story. There's something cathartic about storytelling. There's something meaningful, especially if you can do it as Hillary did in a somewhat artistic way. And find yourself surrounded on an evening of storytelling by people on both sides of you on the playbill telling their own story around your same theme, using the terms one-night-stand in slightly different ways than perhaps you originally intended. So I don't have much appetite for people who would presume to self-righteously stand in judgment over the decisions that this woman made when they didn't get cancer at age 15, they didn't lose a leg shortly thereafter, and they didn't experience all the same things that she might have experienced." I won't tolerate standing in judgment in part because it dawned on me that on some level, I spent a lot of time in high school feeling like people were perhaps standing in judgment of me, while I was maybe at the same time standing right back in judgment at them. And I wonder now, what does it mean if some of those people weren't standing in judgment of me at all? Maybe the worst thing they ever did was not know I existed. Or maybe they knew I existed and, and had no ill will toward me whatsoever. For me, I don't know if I would have... How would I have dealt with Hillary if I'd met her 15 years ago or 10 years ago during one of the darker spells that she describes in her storytelling? Back then, me being that much younger as well, would I have had a lot of criticism? Would I have been disappointed in her for the sake of argument? And it is exactly that kind of attitude that I think this particular moment in my life has taught me I need to deal with a little bit differently than I ever have before because this is somebody I didn't know well enough to have any credentials to justify any judgment that I might be able to cast over any decision that she might have made and in some ways the fact of that the fact that she's somebody that I didn't know the fact that she's somebody that I could have known and the fact that she had that much of a story to tell and I didn't know any of it a room that may have well been populated by a large group of strangers in Dallas, Texas, two years ago, knew her better from the one night than I did in an indeterminate number of years in high school. There's something a little bit wrong with that if I choose to judge. And there's something a little bit right with that if I choose to take her story, learn from it, and find the courage of my own To once again look backward and where it's appropriate bring the nostalgia back into inappropriate conversations and tell stories again. Because I literally went through a process this week of evaluating whether the storytelling aspect, the nostalgia element of inappropriate conversations was done. And there would have to be a political, religious, social issues kind of show from now on. Because if I didn't have the courage to tell the most important story in my life. Who was I kidding by telling all the others? I don't know for sure that this encounter is going to give me the courage to tell those other stories. But I know that it's reminded me that telling those other stories is inherently of value. If you've got a story you'd like to share with me, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. At inappropriateconversations.org, there are show notes. Comments are enabled there as well. Thanks for listening.